Good to have you all here today. And it's good to be back with you as well. We are in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And uh, I'd like for you to turn there. This is just a test. See, Revelation 2. Got it? All right. By the way, as you're turning there, I, I want to uh, extend my appreciation to the pastors who taught uh, while I was away from the pulpit, and um, also to all of you for giving me the opportunity to take a mini sabbatical and uh, ready now to move right on into this new year. And it is still a new year. I know because it's cold outside. And uh, it, it was cold when I left, and it's still cold, so still a new year. But Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 is our text. And uh, before we begin, I, I'd like to, like to pray. So join me in a word of prayer. Father, I am so thankful and so blessed to have the opportunity and the privilege to serve you in this place this evening. I thank you for your mercies and your grace. And I do thank you, Lord God, for your truth. Because indeed, Lord, your truth is something that awakens our hearts to your love for us in the midst of all of the chaos and confusion and circumstances of this world. But we are blessed to know that we do not ever face them alone. You are always with us. So let it be so today that the people who are gathered in this place and in this sanctuary will be hearing a voice instead of a mere echo as you've given me the privilege to expound your word from this pulpit with all fear and with trembling and that with every breath the name of Christ Jesus our Lord will be glorified and that restless hearts will indeed find their rest in you through the power of your Holy Spirit in Christ's name I submit my all to you, Lord. Amen. Amen. When we began our study in Revelation chapter 2, excuse me, we um, began with a letter sent to the church of Ephesus. And here was a a church that was active and uh, labored hard, even in the midst of of the persecution of of its time. That being around the 95, 96 years of, of that first century. But it was a church that had left its first love. And subsequently there was a snuffing out of a candle because there hasn't been really found a church there in Ephesus since then. And then we looked at the next church, the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church. And here was a little church that endured so much, so much persecution, so much loss. But it was rich because it stayed faithful to Christ. The church in Izmir, Turkey, continues. And it's a relatively large church. We come to Pergamos, the third church, to whom Jesus sends a message. 
And we find that this church really does have some connection to a time of history where the church began to compromise with the world. And so what we find in this letter of Jesus to Pergamos is an admonition. to have its compromise dealt with. And the letter begins, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which has the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, And where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, in other words, his throne. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of a man named Frank Sosienski, but Frank Sosienski was a postman, mailman, in Louisville, Kentucky, who didn't really want to deliver some of his mail. Perhaps it was a hot summertime, like we probably are wishing we had one right now. Or maybe the mail was just too heavy. Or maybe he wanted to quit his route just a little early each day. In any case, there were eventually complaints about mail not arriving, and they traced the problem back to Frank. When the postal authorities investigated, they found the mail was missing, and most of it was in Frank's attic. You see, over a six-year period, he stashed away 15 tons of other people's mail. They discovered over 1,200 bags of undelivered mail in Frank Sosienski's attic. So here's a question I want to ask you all. A mail carrier is supposed to do what? To deliver the mail. But here's another question I want to ask you tonight. A Christian is supposed to what? No, not deliver mail. Unless that's what God called you to do. See, that's a hard question to answer, isn't it? A Christian is supposed to what? Well, there are many ways to talk about what a Christian is, what we're called to do, what we're called to be. But one pretty good definition is that a Christian is someone whose faith is in Jesus Christ and is faithful serving Him. But that's not always easy, is it? It's not always easy to serve Jesus Christ. And we can be honest enough with each other to confess that following Jesus and serving Him are not always easy to do. I mean, it's a jungle out there, isn't it? There are a lot of people who make it difficult to be nice. A lot of people who aren't nice to us, but it makes it difficult for us to be nice to them. Except for the very fact that Jesus said, love those who despitefully use you, love those who hate you, 
Lord, I wish you hadn't said that. But isn't that what he said? There are times we really don't feel like being forgiving. We sang a song earlier. How wonderful it is to know that Jesus is giving and forgiving. And then Jesus said, As you see me do, so must you do as well. As I have forgiven you, so must you also forgive. And there are situations in business and at work and on campus and at school. Well, let's, let's just say we sometimes may be tempted to be Christian the way Frank Sosienski delivered mail. But he never delivered it. And we don't deliver then the testimony that God has called us to deliver as believers in Jesus Christ. And sometimes we take this attitude that says, let's just let it slide this once. And we let something slide this once, and then we let it slide again, and then again, and then again. What harm could it do? We call that the beginning of compromise. Now, on another note, on another note, consider yet another scenario. Many years ago, the 18th century Christian writer and theologian, William Law, he warned that the world is now a greater enemy to the Christian than it was in apostolic times. Now, we would probably say, yeah, that's true. The world is a greater enemy against the Christian, but not for the reason we think. Listen carefully. Law surmised, William Law surmised, that it was now a greater enemy because it has a greater power over Christians by its favors, by its honors, by its rewards, by its protection than it had by the fire and the fury of its persecutors. It is a more dangerous enemy by having lost its appearance of enmity or hostility in many cases. And its outward profession of Christianity makes it no longer considered an enemy. And therefore the people are easily persuaded to resign themselves to be governed and directed by the world. Rather than by the word of God. Rather than by the word of Christ. That is yet again another perspective, you see, of compromise. So we've just looked at two diverse perspectives to a simple, singular, and similar problem for the church. The problem being the gradualness to which the church can become a compromising church. It doesn't happen overnight, does it? Never happens overnight. I was going to say that it was an easy thing, but that's not the idea I want you to understand. It is a gradual thing. Whether it be by a slacking off process of letting things slide, the first perspective, or through the allowance of the world's Trojan horses and attitudes into the midst of the church, That's the second attitude that I talked about, or the second perspective. The effect to the whole of the body of Christ is the same. A segment of the church is deceived by the enemy into compromising the values of the authority of God, the the authority of Jesus Christ, the authority of the power of the Holy Spirit, and the authority of the Word of God. All of that is compromised. When we let something slide or when we let the world come in to the church. The Apostle Paul warned the Ephesian elders of this very deception. In Acts chapter 20, we are told there that that, uh, Paul met with the the Ephesian elders in Miletus. And and he spoke to them, uh, gave them a a, a beautiful and certainly a a God-inspired message of encouragement, of hope, of, of, of exhortation, and of admonition. But in one part of that statement that he, that he gives them in verses 29 and 30, 
you find it. He says, for I know this, that after my departing, because he's letting them know, I'm going to leave now, I'm going to be going away. He says, for I know this, that after my my departure uh, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Grievous wolves, but do they come in like this? How do we know that they come in? Wolves with sheep's clothing. But he says they come in, and we know that they're wolves. And we need to be aware that sometimes the outward doesn't represent what's really on the inside. And so he says, after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. They come with one purpose, and that is to hurt and to destroy, to kill, just as we read in Matthew chapter 10, that the thief comes not but to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But then in verse 30, he says, Also of your own selves shall men arise. Of your own selves, within your community of faith, Within the community of believers shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So is it any wonder that the city to which Christ was now writing is called by John the dwelling place of Satan? And that's not John we're saying, it's really Jesus, isn't it? Because it's Jesus' letter to the church. He says it's, it's Satan's dwelling place. Is it any wonder? Needless to say, it has to have been an extremely tough city for a Christian to live and minister in. It is indeed sad that the believers in Pergamos were not able to rise to the occasion and to shine brightly for Jesus Christ, but in fact allowed their witness to diminish to a meager, meager glimmer. They compromised their godly standards with the godlessness of their surrounding culture. They fell prey to one of the devil's most devious and deceitful method of rendering God's people spiritually ineffective. They were warned directly, as we are now being warned indirectly, to the very same danger. That of compromise. So we begin now in this letter, in verse 12 of Revelation 2, with the destination, we've called it different things the last couple of studies but there's always that salutation but it's it's letting us know the destination of the letter and that is of course to Pergamos and Jesus says unto the angel of the church in Pergamos right so we're going to deal with this city of Pergamos for just a moment because today on the ancient site of Pergamos and let's look at a couple of maps here and uh, just want to quickly say that number three is Pergamum. It's called, but it's Pergamus. It's right in here. There's one. That's Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamus. One, two, and three. You can't see that so clear here, but there's, there's Pergamus right there. There's a better map uh, somewhere. There it is. I'll give you a little clearer view. Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. So on the, on the ancient site of, of Pergamus, which is about 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea, exists a little village today called Bergama. Bergama. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds very close to Pergamos. And that is the Turkish designation of the word Pergamos. And as far as, as I know, there is still a small Christian church in that village. There is a legend that says that Pergamos was founded by a son of Hercules on a lofty hill in the broad and fertile plain of the Caicos Valley. Now, there is a, uh, it's hard to tell in this kind of map, but right in that area, that is a valley, and uh, there is a river there, and it's the Caicos River that comes off of, or that goes into the sea there. But it's right in that area there. And that's the Caicos Valley. And uh, when John wrote the letter of, of Pergamus, In about 95-96 AD, it had already been the capital of Asia Minor for 300 years. So of that whole region, Pergamos was the capital. Now Pergamos was an important center of religious worship because four main temples were found there. 
the temples to Athena, a temple to Dionysius, which is better known as the Roman god Bacchus, Zeus, and Asclepius. Asclepius. Now, all four of these prominent temples were built on a large hill in the midst of the city. And while the giant altar of Zeus was called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world there in Pergamos, Pergamos was primarily known for their worship of Asclepius, who was the god of medicine and the god of healing, signified by his image as carrying snakes around with him. Now, and I think I forgot to put that image in here. I might have forgotten. Maybe I didn't. Let's find out. Let's see how wonderful I, I am. No, I didn't put it in. But you all see that symbol there? That's the symbol of Asclepius. Uh, that is the, 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 the symbol that's on the cross there. The snake on the stick. That's Asclepius. There's another symbol that we've seen. It's called the symbol of Caduceus, but uh, it's related, and that's that one. You all see the snakes there. Well, that's the common symbol still for medicine today. So the symbol of two entwined snakes on the pole continue to be what the medical industry still uses as, as its symbol. Those that are in the medical profession, especially, let's say, in the military, you know, they wear those caduceus. So, but it's still linked to this Asclepius. Now, what's interesting about this temple is that uh, people would go there and, and actually, if they had some kind of ailment, they would go and the priests of that temple would actually let uh, very tame, uh, non-poisonous snakes run throughout the whole of the building or the whole of the temple. And the people believed that if they got in and, and, and had one of these snakes, you know, kind of slither over them, that they would be healed. And uh, it could have been very psychosomatic. Just because they let a snake go over them and say, oh, I feel much better. And they probably died the next day. We don't know. But that's the way it was. That was the worship of Asclepius. And uh, that was the main god of Pergamos. And keep that in mind that uh, people from all over the region came there to find some kind of healing for their physical ailments. Now there was also a large university in Pergamos with a library of over 200,000 volumes and you might say, well that doesn't seem all that, uh, uh, you know, great, you know, 200,000 volumes. I mean, Alexandria had many, many more volumes and, and whatnot. But I want you to think about a couple of things. First of all, think about that there was no printing press in that time. And yet they still had 200,000 books in that library. That incredible to think, uh, you know, the, the, the amount of, of the uh, academia that was going on in that time. And so the city was known also for being the manufacturer of papyrus, paper, and parchment. So I guess if you're going to have a library with that many volumes, you need a little bit of paper. So they went ahead and made it there. Let's get to the description. Now that's, that's giving you a little bit of a background of, of, of Pergamos. But then there's a description given to us in the same verse. And it's the second part of the verse. It says, These things saith he, which has the sharp sword with two edges. Now this description is taken from chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 16, where it says, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth, speaking of Jesus, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now the one thing needed in a worldly church, <clears throat> whether it was in the first century or whether it is now, the one thing that is needed in a worldly church is the Word of God. Because in a worldly church, the Word of God doesn't have uh, its, its position that it should have. So what is needed in that church is the Word of God. Then Jesus is saying, hey, I'm writing this to you 
And I'm describing myself as the one with a sharp two-edged sword because that's what you need to hear. Why? Because the, 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 because the Word of God can cut through the most worldly and hardened heart. The Word of God can convict and convince the, world, uh, the worldly of their sins and cut a sharp gash that separates the sinner from his sin. It proclaims the law of God and the utter necessity of living a righteous life. On the other side of this sword, on the other side of this sword, it's a two-edged sword. But on the other side of this sword is the proclamation of the love and grace of God to those who separate from the world and follow the Lord Jesus. In other words, there is an edge to make a wound... There is an edge to make a wound and an edge to open a festered wound in order to bring about its healing. Here was a city that people in the church were turning actually to some of the practices of that city, compromising what they know to be the Word of God, to be what is right for them to do and not doing those things. And the Lord says, but I have come with a two-edged sword. I will cut away as a surgeon that which is harmful to you. But with the other side, I will heal that wound. The Lord never leaves those wounds just open. We oftentimes think he leaves them open and then we get into this idea that, you know, boy, he just wants me to hurt. He doesn't want us to hurt. He wants us to be healed. And he wants us to accept that healing as his love's gift to us. And so when we see... The statements made by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 concerning the armor of God, one of those things that he says is take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Uh, we're not studying Ephesians and the, and the armor of God tonight, but I tell you this, it is so important to see those two things together as Paul put them together, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We can only begin to understand the Word of God and the sword of the Spirit when we've come to know how precious His salvation is. When we come to realize the preciousness of salvation in our lives. That we don't want anything to happen to that salvation. We protect it. You know, it's the helmet that protects that area that knows the things that God has given us. And it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the offensive weapon to bring not only salvation, but healing. In Hebrews 4, verse 12, we're all familiar with this passage. For the Word of God is quick. In other words, the Word of God is alive. The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. In other words, there are two-edged swords, but there's not a two-edged sword like the Word of God. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and, and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, when God begins to use His sword, He knows how to cut. He knows where to cut. He knows what to take out. And He knows what to put it back in. And then He knows how to close it. So that when we heal, we realize it's what's made us new and what's made us whole again. Isn't it great to feel whole again? Because so often we don't feel that. You know, we feel like we've been, you know, through the grinder, man. Man, we got parts all over the place. God says, I put them back together. Oh, we got to awaken to that. That's what he does. But there's something else we need to understand about the sword. And I mentioned this earlier, back in chapter 1, when we talked about the sword that came out of Jesus' mouth. Again, in essence, this sword, Romphia is what it's called in the Greek, was swung to cut down the opposition. 
It was swung to cut down the opposition. It is on the one hand the sword of judgment, but on the other it is the sword of victory and the sword of healing. Compromise will be judged. Separation from sin will bring salvation. And that's how this sword works. That's how Christ has always worked. That's how God has worked from the very beginning. What happened in the garden when sin was introduced to man? God had to deal with it, but He didn't kill man. He killed an animal that shed its blood. And then He took the the skins of the animal and covered the man and the woman. With one swing, He judged sin. With the other, He healed and He covered. So this was an awakening to remember what Jesus is all about to these churches, especially to Pergamos. And so now comes a commendation, what Jesus knows about this church. And that's in verse 13. It says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. Now remember, he's not speaking to the people of Pergamos as much as he's speaking to the believers that live in Pergamos. There is a difference, right? Because not everybody in Pergamos was saved. Not everybody was a believer. As a matter of fact, most of them were not believers. But to this group of people that were believers, Jesus writes to them and He says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. I know where you live. Isn't that a great statement? We sometimes say that, hey man, I know where you live. And we usually say that because we want to get our, our lawnmower back. Hey, I know where you live and I'm going to come and get it. Hey, you owe me 20 bucks. I know where you live. I'm going to come get it. But Jesus says, I know where you live. I know where you dwell. Even where Satan's seat is. Where Satan's throne is. That's what he says of this, of this city. And then he says, and thou holdest fast my name. In other words, you're holding steadfast to my name. Well, this is the commendation. He's commending them. And then he says, and has not denied my faith. Even in those days where, where in Antipas was, was my faithful martyr, which means Antipas gave his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says, who was slain, slain among you where Satan dwells. Isn't that interesting that two times in one verse, Jesus says that Satan dwells where the church at Pergamos was. Two times. That's significant. Now everything Jesus says, whether He says it once, twice, or three times is significant. But every time He says something more than once, it's much more significant. And this is significant. That He mentions it twice. And He knew that they were right in the middle of satanic activity. Was Ephesus in in the midst of satanic activity? Yes. Was Smyrna in the midst of satanic activity? Yes. But he says, Pergamos was really in the midst of satanic activity. Doubled. Multiplied. He knew they were right in the midst of it. And Christ looked at that church and he looked at its problems and he says, I know. I know. Now you might ask, how does he know? Well, simply, of course, he was there. He was there, but he was there in more ways than the one way you think he was there. He was there in the midst of satanic activity before anybody was ever in the midst of satanic activity. I want to call your attention to the 40 days that Jesus hungered in the wilderness. When Satan then tempted him. Y'all remember that? It's in Matthew chapter 4, by the way. By the way, if, if it seems like it's too close, there, I think I mentioned this last time, read it out of your Bibles. Okay. Yeah. I didn't put it up here for you to read. It's for me to play around with. I want you to look at it in your Bibles, because that's what you have to mark. That's what you have to remember because you have it with you all the time. 
What are you supposed to? All right. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward a hungered, which means he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered, and he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus knew, you see. Jesus knew what it was like to be in the head-to-head combat with the enemy. So when he says to the church of Pergamos, I know, I know your works. And I know where you dwell. I know because I've been there. Jesus didn't use the Greek word that meant to know by observation. He used the word oida, which means to know by experience. But why was Pergamos such a satanic stronghold? Let's say more than the others, at least up to this point. Well, certainly being a worship center for so many gods, that was a problem. You see, any, if, if you worship any other thing or any other god than the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true god, the one living and true god, if you worship anything other than uh, the person of Jesus Christ, then you are not worshiping within the realm of God's way of worship that He wants. You're worshiping Satan's way. That's satanic activity. I can tell you right now that cults, the cults that are, that are seemingly Christian but they're not, that's all due to satanic activity. Not that they worship Satan, but they're deceived. A cloak has been put over their eyes. They can't see the truth. You try to talk to Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or or, or, or a bunch of any other uh, non-Christian cults. And they're not not just blind. They've been taught to even be deceptive as well to you. We don't have time to go into it. But, but if you're, you're living in a city where there's a, a, an altar to Athena and Dionysius and Zeus and Asclepius and, and who knows how many other gods around there. And you remember, you remember when, when, when Paul went to Athens and he walks in and I mean, there's gods everywhere. They even had a monument to, to an unknown god. We've we got gods we don't even know. And that's the one he used, right, to say, hey, I know them. <laughs> He's the one true god. That's true. You don't know him, but I know him. Satanic activity. I mean, it's not with some guy running around in a red suit. It's because he doesn't want you to see that. He just doesn't want you to see the truth. And he doesn't want you to see the cross. And he doesn't want you to see the blood of Jesus Christ and what it does for man's salvation. He wants you to see it. So being a worship center for so many gods was a problem. The fact that Asclepius' worship was so intense that they actually called him. By the way, they called him Asclepius Soter. You know what that means? Asclepius, our Savior. Some snake handler. They called him a Savior. Right at that point in time you realize that's satanic. And it made it difficult for the church to say that there was only one Savior, Jesus. And if you were in the minority, man, you were going to hear about it. And they were going to persecute you for it. They killed Antipas for it. They'll kill the rest of them. And then, not to mention that even though Smyrna was the center of emperor worship, emperor worship was actually founded in Pergamos. Meaning they were not only to worship the emperor, but they were to worship the government as well. And folks, whenever the government gets to a point where they're getting you to begin to look toward them for all kinds of help and all kinds of things and all kinds of needs to kind of, you know, solve all of the world's problems, that is satanic. Because it's drawing you away from Jesus Christ. We do not worship government. We only worship the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
We worship him in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And there is only one Lord, and there is only one God, and he is it. They were hanging on it. They were hanging on. This church was truly hanging on, uh, even when facing martyrdom. And the Lord commended them for this. They, they stood true when Satan sat. <laughs> they stood fast when Satan sat. And where Satan sat? They kept God's name. They didn't deny the faith. They hung on even when a faithful brother was martyred. You know, I, I think of this Antipas. We don't know much about this one particular Antipas, but history tells us nothing of this Antipas. But Jesus took notice of him, didn't he? Isn't that significant? That Jesus took notice of some insignificant person because he was faithful to the end. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 11.38, there's one little statement I want you to see. Of whom the world was not worthy. The world was not worthy of a man who we don't know him much about, but Jesus knows him because Jesus knows the world's not worthy of him. But with all of that commendation, you know what else comes? A condemnation. And with it, and a rebuke. Notice in verses 14 and 15 of Revelation 2, it says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, really, but it's Balaam, and who taught Balak or Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Now that's one doctrine. But then it says in verse 15, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So within the, the church, within the uh, church community of Pergamos, there were two factions within that church. And um, it was like having two denominations there in the midst of the whole of the church. And one taught the doctrine of Balaam and the other taught the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, Jesus' condemnation of the Pergamos church, in fact, if you'll notice, it is very distinct towards those who were following the doctrines of Balaam and those following the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. I'll, I'll show you that in just a moment. But Jesus' condemnation of the Pergamos church was twofold. First of all, they held to the doctrine of Balaam, and, and second, they held to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. In other words, the overwhelming majority of this church was drowning in false practices and false doctrines, and the Lord wanted them to see and hear these things so that they would come out of these practices. He's not giving them this letter to say, well, you know, I know there's some problems in there, but, you know, just kind of hang in there and we'll see what happens. No, he says, no, even in the midst of your persecution and of those that are holding fast and those that are holding strong and to the faith and all of that and are ready to give their lives, there are those that are not. There are those that have come and compromised the message of the gospel. And you need to come out of these practices. So let's deal with the doctrine of Balaam first. Uh, Balaam's story is recorded in the book of Numbers, which is chapters uh, 22 through 24 in Numbers in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel was marching from Egypt to the Promised Land. No nation could withstand them on their journey as they walked with God through the wilderness. Now, King Balak of Moab was rightfully terrified of them. He sent for a, a Gentile prophet named, uh, prophet named Balaam to employ him. Uh, Balak wanted to, to put him on his payroll, this, this prophet Balaam, and, and have him curse the nation of Israel. He wanted him to go and curse the nation of Israel. Three times Balaam tried to curse them, but each time the words he spoke blessed them instead. So he was supposed to go and curse them, and every time he went, he would just bless them. 
And I think that Balak kept saying, you know, I'm not getting my money's worth out of this guy. And he's going the wrong way with all of these things. I want him to curse. Maybe he doesn't understand the curse thing. He's, uh, maybe his language uh, problem is, is causing that. But uh, unable to curse them. But still desiring the money that Balak had offered him. Balaam counseled Balak, the king, on how he might yet stop the march of the Israelites. Here's the doctrine of of Balaam. Balaam told Balak to send the Moabite priestesses into the camp of Israel to seduce the Israelite men into celebrating their pagan feast of Baal Peor. Now the feast involved idolatry and sexual immorality and what we need to understand about these priestesses was not that they came in, you know, some kind of pious garb. These priestesses, quote unquote, were actually prostitutes. And the plan worked. It led to compromise. Their compromise had devastating results. Because God sent a plague into the camp of the Israelites that killed 24,000 of them. 24,000 Israelites were judged. Compromise from inside the camp had accomplished what no sword could have done in, in conquering God's people. Compromise did it. And though the passage that shows us that compromise is, is Numbers 25, the next chapter, verses 1 through 3. It says, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. And the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. Now stop and think about what it was that Jesus was writing to Pergamos. He says, you follow the doctrine of Balaam. There is the committing of immorality. There is a, and then there's the eating of food offered to idols. It's all here. They called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And here's verse 3. Notice it says, And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So Balaam's doctrine was how he taught Balak to entice the Israelites to compromise their faith. He couldn't defeat them by outright going to war. He beat them by joining them. Joining them to his ways. By causing them to compromise the intermarriage. Which, by the way, what's interesting is you try to do a study of the word Pergamos. The city that's receiving this letter from Jesus. And some believe that Pergamos literally means mixed marriage. It's just a thought. But the intermarriage with the heathen women of Pergamos became a problem for the church there as well. Because that's the doctrine of Balaam. That is exactly what happened to the Israelites, is what was happening in Pergamos. They were intermarrying with the heathen of that city. For the social contact led to believers compromising with the worldly practices of their drunken parties, their drunken orgies, which would lead to the eating of things sacrificed to idols. Now, I know that Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He deals with it a little bit in, in the book of Romans when he talks about, you know, the, uh, you know, if, uh, do we eat the things? If you eat something sacrificed, to you don't know it. Well, you know, don't worry about it. It's just food, you know. But if you eat it, if you eat things sacrificed to idols and it's going to offend somebody, that's what he says in Romans, then you don't do it, you know, because you don't want to offend anybody. So, you know, Paul deals with all of that. But the, the, but the fact of the matter is that all of these things led to everything that was done in Numbers when it came to the doctrine of Balaam. 
And that's why it was so dangerous. And hence, the seeking of the pleasures and possessions of the world. Inside the church. The Trojan horse had been brought in. And this is what makes the connection between uh, Pergamos and, and uh, as, as some t- teachers teach about uh, some connection between the seven uh, letters to the churches of Revelations two and, uh, Revelation 2 and 3 uh, with, with time periods of church history. This one is probably the closest one to one time period of history where the church became compromising because uh, it was around the time in, in the 300 AD uh, time when, when, uh, when, when Constantine, the Roman emperor, actually became a Christian and accepted the truth of Jesus Christ. But then he began to bring in pagan practices of of before into the church, which led to all kinds of of, of worship of idols and and the making of statues and the bowing down of statues or two statues and and whatnot, and and, and building really more an ecclesiastical view of things rather than a biblical view of things. So, that's the doctrine of Balaam, in a nutshell. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, and this I have to break down in a couple of, 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 of slides, but it says, but Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship is righteousness with unrighteousness? So Paul is making, making a, the argument here that we can't do that, as Pergamos had done. And what communion has light with darkness? They, they don't have communion. They're, 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 they're not equally yoked. And what concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believeth with an infidel? Think of verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For, for you're the temple of the living God. A few times Paul has to remind us of that. You are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then he says in verses uh, 17 and 18, he says, Wherefore come out of, from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, the second rebuke against this church is they, is they held the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And I can tell you this, what I was just describing a little while ago about, about receiving, you know, having, having the, uh, uh, the knowledge of Christ, but then adding to that certain things and certain manners of, of, of paganism into that, that in, in essence has led to this doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The church of Ephesus stood against this, if you remember, back in the first uh, seven verses of, of this chapter. It talked, uh, Jesus said, you have stood up against this Nicolaitan doctrine. But the church in Pergamos was embracing this doctrine that Jesus hates. He hates this doctrine. There are many ideas of what this doctrine is all about, but to me, the simplest way to understand the doctrine and I did this before, is to break the word down, Nicolaitans, into two words, Nikao, which means to conquer, and Laosh, which means the people. It is to conquer the people. It is to tell the people, do what we say, do it as the way we say it. We tell you to do what we say and not what we do. Do what we say, not what we do. They conquered the people. They tell the people what to read. They tell the people how to read. They tell the people you can't read. In the dark ages, in the middle ages, there was one Bible. It was in the church. And it was under lock and key. That was the Nicolaitan doctrine. The priests wore robes to distinguish themselves from the people as if to say, we know the truth. You come to us for for the wisdom of it. And the Lord hates that. Because He came for all. And so, this idea here is the setting up of a hierarchical system where some people are over others. They profess they're closer to God, and to get to God, you have to go through them. 
folks, any church or person that embraces that is wrong. Just wrong. I should be hearing a lot of amens about that. Well, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 tells us why. Because there's only one God. And one mediator, folks. One mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. It is sad that we would look to the outward, no matter what that person does on the inside. We look to the outward. God says, My son is for you, my word is for you. All of it. Read it, study it, know it. Know me through it. Serve me. Obey it. Do it. So the exhortation comes, and we've got to move on here because I'm going kind of slow. Been a while. I'm just kind of moseying along. But I, I'll, we're going to finish here. But the exhortation is, or the promise or threatened coming. What, what is it for this church? It's a threatened coming, isn't it? It's both a promise and a threatened coming. Because he says, repent. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The exhortation is simple. For those who hold on to these practices, they need to repent. They need to turn away completely, 180 degrees away from the direction they were going, into a direction back to God, back to Christ, back to the Word of God. If you refuse to turn to God to have a change of mind that leads to a change of your behavior, the Lord will come and fight against you with a sword of judgment. Now, go back, if you will, for just a moment. Let me find it. Verse 14, let's go back there for just a moment. I have a few things against you because you have, those, you, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught... Uh, and then, and, and then in verse 15, those, uh, thus you also have those who hold. Those. So he's speaking directly to those who are holding to these doctrines. And that's the point. He's going to fight against those who hold to these doctrines. There were those in the church who were faithful. That's the point. There's always the remnant of faithfulness in the church. But those who are not holding to the truth and holding to the, the doctrines, he's going to come with a sword of judgment, which is the word of God. And that is the warning. You know what Jesus said in John chapter 12, verses 47 and 48? This is what he said. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. God's word is going to judge those who choose to reject the truth of Jesus Christ. You know, we know that David had a problem. The king of Israel had this major problem in his life. And God had to do what he had to do to get him back on track. But one thing after all of that ever happened... There was never a word that, remember David did this and this. The word was, David was faithful to me and my word. God forgave him to the point that the sin was set aside. And David was faithful to God's word. So remain faithful, you see, to God's word. Well, we have our struggles, yes. We have temptation all around. We have all these things that we deal with. But you know what? God says, I'm I remember your faithfulness. But be faithful to them, to Him. Because there is a judge. We bring the judgment on ourselves, but it's the Word that judges. So, folks, let's, this isn't let's make a deal here. How many of you know the, sh the show, Let's Make a Deal? Yeah, what's behind door number one and two? This isn't let's make a deal. We can't live that way. God says, no, it doesn't work that way. You've got to come to me. And if you come to me and believe me and trust me, I will bless you. 
Even in the midst of your trials, I'll bless you. So he sends the admonition, and we're almost done here, so we'll be just a couple minutes late, but here we go. Here's the admonition. The admonition is, listen! Listen! He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the hidden manna. Oh, listen, that's... He's going to give hidden manna. And, and we'll give him a, a white stone. Some people believe that that stone is a diamond. I don't know. It doesn't say diamond, but something. It's got to be a diamond. I don't know. It's just a white stone. But on the stone is a new name written, which no man knows, save, saving he that received it. When you get this white stone, there'll be a name on there. It's probably yours. But the Lord has given to you. He that has an ear, let him hear. God's going to give you something. The dangers of false teaching and false practices still face the church today. Today more than ever. There is so much stuff that we need to discern as Christians. I, I you know, I need to tell you that some, sometimes I hear people talk about one teacher on the radio or one teacher on TV oh they said this and that was wonderful but you know check into it be discerning because sometimes they say stuff hidden within the things that they're saying that is just not the word of God it's just not what God wants you to have from him it's not the full counsel of God and that's going on a lot there are a lot of Trojan horses coming in from the new age movement uh, the emerging church movement, all kinds of things coming in and trying to deceive and say, oh, don't study the Bible, man. That's, that's, old, that's old news. That's old hat. No, it isn't. The Word of God is fresh every day. It's alive today, more today than it was ever. Because God's Word never fails. And to say not to study the Bible, it, that comes from the enemy, folks. That's the enemy. He doesn't want us to get into God's Word. So the danger, the danger of allowing them to come in, I mean, that was the problem with the believers in Pergamos. They let them come in. I mean, I, if, if I've heard one emerging church leader talk about trying to, you know, have, you know, do holy hands with, with Buddhists and stuff, we need to learn from them. That's, that's of the devil, folks. That's not of the Lord. Do you know that Buddhists are, are, are essentially atheists? They don't believe in a God. They don't believe in a personal, true, one, true personal God. They believe that if you follow a certain path, you're going to become God. But they're essentially atheists. They don't believe in God. Well, I want to hold hands with them. I want to tell them about Jesus, that there is a God who died for them. And love them. That He gave it. You know, that God gave His only begotten Son. They need to know that. To the ones who overcome, the spirit of compromise and accommodation will be given hidden manna. This is God's perfect provision because it is His true bread from heaven. In John 6, 32 and 33, Jesus said unto them, Verily I, verily I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He which cometh down from heaven and giveth light unto the world. That's Jesus. Jesus is the hidden manna. Jesus is the true manna. Does anybody see Jesus here today? But we know He's here, right? Hidden manna. Guess what? He's here. And I hope He's in your heart. Because He says, that's where I dwell. Satan might dwell in his throne in Pergamos, but Jesus dwells in us here and with us. And when we leave, he goes with us. As for the white stone, this may likely refer to the ancient judicial practice of jurors casting their vote for acquittal by a white pebble into an urn. That's how they voted for making certain types of uh, judgments. In other words, our repentance 
will bring Christ's vote for forgiveness. An act that removes the guilt and the stigma attached to compromise. The Lord will remove it. Then He will give us a new name written on that stone. What will that do? It will change our faithlessness into faithfulness. It will change our dishonesty into honesty. It will change our impurity into purity. And when a person turns from compromise, listen carefully. When a a person turns from compromise, the Lord begins to cleanse them. He begins to restore them. And then He heals them. See, we don't need no snakes. That doesn't sound very good. We don't need no snakes. English teachers, forgive me. I'm trying to make a point here. We don't need any snakes slithering on our bodies for healing. Jesus already did it. By His stripes, we are healed. What more could we ask? I have one last statement to make. The hidden manna takes care of us today. The white stone is our promise for the future. Let's take hold of God's Word and let's keep it. And let's do it. Amen? Let's pray.